Father, thank you for this time in the Word of God and uh, just praying, Father, for your hand of mercy to illuminate it to our understanding, to give us a greater insight into a difficult subject. Uh, Father, you would uh, speak to our hearts and minister to us as only you can. Each of our um, situations here today is unique, and uh, not all things are uh, going to hit home, uh, but Father, we know that your Spirit can minister these things to us because your Word is perfect. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I am extremely unqualified for what I'm getting ready to, to go through with you. And the reason is, is because we're going to talk about the subject of suffering. I don't know much about suffering. I can't say that things have been horrible in my life and I've suffered through a lot of things. Um, in fact, I'm insanely blessed. I can't figure out why. Maybe that's where the suffering is. Why am I blessed? I don't know. But um, some people have suffered long, hard times. Uh, they, they sometimes question how to deal with it or how to move on or how to grow out of it or if it's even worth continuing on. A lot of people wrestle with whether or not their life matters in situations. I think one of the most important things we can do is take a look at our culture and see how they deal with suffering. Everybody remember the Chilean miners? Remember that when they were trapped? There was a lot of suffering and grief, and, and all of a sudden, people that didn't normally pray started praying. Everybody remember that? We think about the Oklahoma City bombing. We think about 9-11. We think about tragedies that have taken place and suffering that's happened. And that's only stuff that we're aware of because it happened here. Sometimes you can take a look at uh, art and see where suffering takes place. A lot of people try to dictate their suffering through art and try to bring some sort of rationale to it. There's a movement going on right now that, uh, if you're familiar with Richard Dawkins, you're familiar with him? Okay, so the, the new atheism is the idea of what it is. and His whole idea is that when something tragic happens, that's just how it was supposed to be. You, your, your life is just material. Your cells are just material. And these cells are just kind of playing out the program that the universe wanted to instill in it. And so... All tragedy that happens, you just got to accept it. That's just the way that it is. And we should never complain or think that it's wrong or try to make some sort of moral judgment against it. Now, how many of you here are early 60s? Raise your hand. Okay. So I can throw this reference out there and some of you will get it. How many of you have ever heard of the band Pink Floyd? Rock band Pink Floyd. Okay, whoa. All right. There you go. There you go. In 1979, they released a double album called The Wall. How many of you are familiar with The Wall? Okay, wow. Okay, good. And the whole premise behind The Wall is the idea of a rock star who grew up without a dad because he lost his dad in the war. He's become completely disenchanted with the life that stardom and fame has to offer. And so drugs become the answer. Uh, groupies become the answer. Everything else becomes the answer. And what he realizes is, is there is no answer. The only answer is is I need to isolate myself from everybody else. And so the whole notion is, is building a wall between yourself and everyone else, cutting everyone else off. Nothing else matters. And the grand conclusion that you come down to at the end of the whole thing is the only solution to his problem is to tear down the wall. It never gives you a, it never gives you a resolve, though. There's never a why. Nobody ever answers why. Everybody points to what? This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And I love it when people who aren't Christians do it. 
Because what it's telling me is, is you know the difference between right and wrong. There's a lot more to the situation in eternity than maybe what we're thinking. If you pay attention to the world around you, it will all testify suffering is real and suffering is a problem. That's what it is. Why it goes on, the world lacks an answer. So I'm going to try feebly to maybe give us some sort of rock to grab onto that hopefully the sermon won't just sit here and, and fly away into the cyber universe and you never, you never dwell upon these things again. That's why I give notes. I give notes because what we're dealing with is not what you grasp on Sunday. It's what you take with you in Monday through Saturday when you have the opportunity to reflect upon this in your own time in the Word. The Holy Spirit can begin to minister these things so that they become mainstays in your mind, that our minds are renewed by the idea, not my notes, the Scriptures that we're dealing with. So what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3. Something that we dealt with, about three verses we dealt with last week. And I told you that we would expound upon them a little bit this week. Now this is the Lord talking to Moses out of the burning bush. And he's given an evaluation of the situation that requires for God to get involved and to use Moses as the person who is going to introduce Pharaoh to Yahweh. God uses people for his purposes. So in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Notice the ownership that Yahweh puts on the Israelites. Who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now up until this moment in Scripture, if you were to begin at Genesis 1-1 and read through, you haven't really seen God taking a personal offense because a people that he deeply loves is suffering. You don't really find a story of suffering until this moment. And God is communicating to Moses saying, I am coming down. He is condescending himself in order to deal with the problem. In fact, what's interesting is, is the Old Testament idea of stooping down or condescending is where we get the concept of grace from. It's the very origin of the idea of grace. Now you read through this and you say, okay, he sees the suffering. He's going to deliver them, lead them out. There's going to be a good land that they go to. He's promised it. He's aware of them struggling. And if you're reading through this and you're looking through, what is the question that you ask? Throw it out here. Talk to me. What took him so long? 
God, where were you? I mean, is it just me, or can you not imagine all the Israelites when the taskmasters weren't looking going? Where was God? Now, we know that there was a Pharaoh who knew Joseph, right? And he passed away off the scene. And when he passed away off the scene, we don't know how much time really took place. We know the captivity was 400 and precisely 430 years of that time. But there was a new Pharaoh that came on the scene that made the decision. These people are too many. Obviously, there was time for them to grow and reproduce. These are too many people. And if we don't get this situation under control, they are going to rise up with our enemies and do away with us. So we have to enslave them. So let's just say as a conservative number, they'd probably been in slavery for about 70 years. Maybe 50 years. Maybe 30 years. How much time was too long until God got involved? Any time? Right? In our predicament, that's kind of the idea, right? We find ourselves in a sudden hardship and we're immediately, how do I get out of this? I want relief. I want rescue. It doesn't matter if you got a hurt pinky toe. It doesn't matter if you got a sudden unexpected bill in the mail. It doesn't matter if you got a phone call that tears your world down. It's got to get fixed. It's got to be a solution. Help. Now. Now. You can't be too quick with this. So some questions I bring to the text as I'm reading through is, well, God, why did you let this happen? I mean, that's what we do in every life-changing situation, don't we? Even people who don't believe in Jesus ask the question of a God that they do not serve, why? I have a book out there to give away for free that deals with this by a guy named Philip Yancey. He was the editor for Christianity Today for years. His very first book was a huge selling book because he wanted to know the question, where's God when it hurts? I think he wrote that around 26 years old. It's a good question for a 26-year-old to to ask, right? But this book right here is a follow-up, the question that never goes away. Can you imagine what that question is? It's why. Why? Why did this happen? Why did this take place? If God is all-powerful, is God is all-knowing, if he's everywhere present, then there's nothing that he's not aware of. He's got he's to handle mentally on it more than I do. He's seeing this tragedy. What in the world is going on, God, that would cause you to delay to stepping in immediately so I don't have to experience this situation? Here's another question I want to ask. If he knew that this is what Egypt was going to become, why do you even let them get together in the first place? How come he didn't take care of that? How come, how come God's not doing what I want him to do? Right? That resonates. Because we all got an idea of what God ought to be doing. What is he really doing? How many of you have turned on your TV? You see a news story. Anybody watch the news lately? No, exactly. No, it's depressing. Exactly. You wonder why vitamin D is off the shelf in this town. That's the reason why. The news. It's not the weather. It's the news. But how many of you see a story on there that's just terrible and you just shake your head thinking this is so senseless? And all the people that are affected by it, it's never just one person that experiences the hurt or the trauma, is it? 
It's like a ripple effect. It's like somebody chucked a cinder block out in the middle of a pond. And it just flows out to everybody, and everybody feels the effects of it. Even people who don't know have their heartstrings pulled upon because they hurt for other people in their struggle. And we sit here and we look at that and we say, that's just not right. Did you know that the pagan says the same thing? Did you know that a pagan looks at the news and sees tragedies that happen and they go, oh, what's wrong with everybody? It doesn't take a saved person to realize the difference between justice and injustice. It's something we know. It's something because being divinely created in the image of God, that part of that image is not just that one day he would become a man and Jesus Christ would take on a flesh vehicle like this. It's the idea of understanding a concept of what is right and what is wrong. That's why the, the scripture speaks so strongly about people's consciences that are seared. What are they seared from? Well, discerning the difference between right and wrong. That's the problem. Sin became too enjoyable. I was talking with Mary about this. And she said, nobody wants to hear that when I told her this. But it's true. All suffering results from what? Sin. And when you're going through it, you don't want to hear that, do you? That's not very comforting, is it? Because you know that sin is still a problem. If you can take a, a, a mental time out and step outside of the situation where you're experiencing hardship and you look out, sin's still there. We're still having to deal with it all the time. Young, old, doesn't matter. Everybody's dealing with it. So since I don't have extremely wise words of wisdom to give to you about how to deal with it, we can examine what God's word has to say about it. What happens when suffering goes on where's god when this is taking place take your bibles please turn with me to romans 5 And if you have questions, I, I encourage you to ask them, but I certainly can't guarantee that I can answer them. But maybe the question you have on your heart about this subject might be something that somebody else is thinking, or as we'll see in a little while, something that somebody else has gone through that they can help with. Romans 5, beautiful chapter. And this is something that Christians don't want to hear. And here's the reason why is because, honestly, a lot of times we don't believe it. See, that's what's interesting is all the answers that God gives about why suffering occurs are all answers that we don't want to accept. We want easier answers. We want more me-conforming answers. And I promise you this, when we come to that situation where we're facing off with the Scriptures about an answer for this subject, it's not the Scriptures that have the problem. So the mind has to be changed. Romans 5, look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, because that's the big subject that we just came out of, so that's a reality, done deal. We have, presently speaking, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause. Do you believe that? How is one justified? Let's say about Abraham. Abraham did what? 
believed God and it was accredited to him, it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. He was justified in God's sight by one way and one way only. His works didn't have a thing to do with it. The question was, do I believe that what God is telling me about this situation is true? I either believe him or I don't. And from that basic decision that we all have to make about any given subject, salvation probably being the most important one of all, dictates how we think and walk forward and operate and make decisions from there out. So either God knows what he's talking about or he doesn't, but that's a decisive decision we all have to make. That's where we all have to start. So here's the first thing I know. If you're justified, you have, presently speaking, peace with God. You have it. It's yours. Well, how come I don't feel it? Because if Christianity was about what you felt, it'd be weird. Right? How many people have a different feeling right now than you did when you got up this morning? Right? Based on the chili that you had last night, right? Just saying. Feelings change. We change. Any little thing could set us off. Right? Person cut you off on the way here. Did they? Who did? Who, who cut you? Did somebody cut you off the way here? Who said that? Nobody wants to. It was, okay. I get it. I get it. Just preach. Okay. I followed Kayla here this morning. I couldn't get in front of her to save my life to get here. That girl was late for something. It was. Lord knows. That's all right. But if you're justified, you have peace with God. That is a reality. Not about how you feel. It's what is. It is truth. So with that in mind, verse 2, through whom? Where did we get it? Also we have obtained our introduction, our access by faith. That's the way we got there. Into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, we've talked about this before. Hope does not mean, I hope this works out. I hope they're not mad at me. That's not what it means. In fact, I went as far as to write down the definition. Here it is. Looking forward to something with some reason for confidence respecting fulfillment. Having a sound expectation that it's going to happen. In other words, there's no reason for you to doubt. Belief? Unbelief. So it says here, by faith we have access into this grace, an introduction in this grace in which we stand, and we exult, we glorify in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, and real quick, that all sounds great, doesn't it? If we stop there, amen, let's worship and pray and go home. But Paul doesn't stop there. And I want to say, Paul, don't you know when to be quiet? And he's a preacher. He says, no, you should know this. Verse 3, and not only this, not only are we glorifying in the good stuff, but look what he says, but we also exult. We also, the good word for exult, if you need a better uh, understanding of it boast boasting about stuff 
right? We all like to boast about something, boast on your kids, boast on your high score on Pac-Man, whatever it is, boast on how much you ate at Pizza Ranch. We also boast in our tribulations. Stop. Do you believe that? It's what? It's hard to. I'm going through a hard time. My response should be, thank you, God, that all these bills flooded in at one time. Thank you, God, that I'm on step number one, but my elbow is on step number six. I spend enough time with you. Even if it's only Sunday. (laughs) Thank you, God, that I got rear-ended at the stoplight. God, I can't praise you enough for the wrecks that are going on. That's not normal. Saying thank you in suffering is not normal. It's not normal. And yet, this is what Paul is saying. Here's how you handle tribulation. What does tribulation mean? It doesn't mean, whoa, it's not an earthquake. What is tribulation? It's the seven years when the Antichrist... No! That's not what he's talking about here. Trials. Hard times. When you find out that that grandchild can't stop smoking weed, it's not addictive. Why can't you stop? Trying to feel something. And it grieves your heart in the process, doesn't it? Finding out that somebody you were close to in your business... He's been stealing money all along. Why would you do such a thing? I thought we were closer. In the end, everybody's looking out for themselves. And when I have what I thought I knew was normal, invaded by sin, my response is to say, thank you, God. Why? Well, thankfully, he does go on. We boast in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that, pause, if you have your pen, that's a good thing to circle. And here's the reason why. Because if I don't know it, I need to know it. If it's not something that I am presently affirming as true, then my mind is not thinking according to truth about my situation. Knowing that, here's what's happening, tribulation brings about, what's the word? Perseverance. That's the Greek stick with itness, right? I don't know how we'd spell that, but yeah. Steadfastness. Unless you have tribulation, you have no opportunity to stick it out. And not stick it out because you pulled all of your wisdom together and you got all your strength and might and you are such a disciplined person and you can accomplish it. No. Because you're relying on the person who you are justified before and already have peace with 
and have this wide open access door to step into a state called grace. Undeserved acceptance and care. Okay? So that's the idea. The tribulation, the suffering, the hard time brings about an opportunity to persevere. Let me say this. It's at the end of the notes, but I'll go ahead and ruin it for you so we can go ahead and apply it. Tribulation in your life has no benefit if you don't stick through it. Hardships do not have any payoff if we don't persevere. The sticky situations will seem like a senseless pile of garbage if we're not steadfast. It is following the directive of the Lord's instructions. This hard time, guess what it does? It gives you an opportunity to lean into him like you never have before. Why? Because what you need in the situation is not a quick hot button answer. What we need is God doing God things in the midst of a bad situation. Only, get this, and I know this is, I'm going to say this and you're going to be like, well, <laughs> yeah. Only God can do God things. That needs to be a bumper sticker. And we don't put it on our bumpers, we put it on our dashboards, right? Only God can do God things. And if I'm going through a hard time, if I need anything at that moment, I need a God thing. Because I guarantee you, if I bring a Jeremy thing to the situation, it's going to be the very definition and epitome of tribulation. It's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. So this opportunity and suffering brings about perseverance. And perseverance proven character does anybody have anything different there in verse four and perseverance instead of proven character does it say anything different anybody got something what's that experience it brings experience what's that brings patience who has hope okay you have hope have hope have hope hopes at the end why did they do that to you in your translation it's not niv is it that's a joke. Okay, moving on. And perseverance, proven character. If you read the NIV, it's okay. Jesus loves you. It's fine. Uh, proven character. In other words, the idea that because you have been tested, it is able to make you stand on the other side of the test. You don't see the light when it's all heaped upon you, but it's there. And God is guaranteeing to bring you through it if, if, the contingency, if you trust him. If you don't trust him, what should he do? Think about in James. Everybody loves that passage in James, don't you? We spent some time on that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, right? You already know James has been drinking something. It's not a good day. I should count it joy? Yeah, joy. How many of you use the word joy lately? Besides Christmas, joy to the world. Boy, this, this situation really gave me joy. We never use that word. What is James saying? It's going bad, joy. That's what he's saying. When you experience trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. And then we usually stop there and we say, my devotions are good for the day. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. But when he asks, let him ask without doubting. For the man who doubts is like a ship on the waves, tossed to and fro. The imagery there in the Greek is he's a double-minded man. Don't know which way to go. Cannot make a decisive decision. When you ask God, when you take the time to pray and say, Lord, help me in this situation, and you're doubting him in the process, you don't really believe that he can do what he says he can do in his word. The question is, why are you asking then? Everybody see how logical that is? Don't waste your time asking. Notice it's the same concept. Proven character. And proven character, what is it? Hope. It's going to happen. It's going to get taken care of. It's going to be okay. I can expect a resolution or a resolve in this situation. And look what it says after that. Hope does not disappoint because the love, what kind of love do you think that is? Unconditional love. Agape. The unconditional love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. In other words, God's love can sustain you. That hope is not going to disappoint. That expectation is sure. In other words, let me, let me, let me summarize it a little bit so we can move on to another passage and kind of see a little bit more about this. In the midst of our suffering, God knows exactly what's happening. He's not unaware as much as the enemy would like to tell you that he is. He cares for you more than anyone else in the situation. As much as Satan would like to say, man, God must not love you, otherwise you wouldn't be going through this. What he wants to do is get your eyes off of truth. You buy one lie, it's a lot easier to swallow the other's. God has given a proven plan. Stick with it. Trust Him. Has God ever given us a reason not to? So why in, the, why, in those, why in those moments when those things happen, when all of a sudden your world is just turned upside down, is, our, is some of our first thinking, the first thinking that creeps up and catches us by surprise is, where's God? God's fully aware. God didn't miss it. God didn't say, where did that come from? Now get this, I think this is important. That doesn't mean he caused it. I think that's important. God does not wish evil on his kids. Just like none of you fathers would wish evil on your children. It's important to think about. Let's look at another passage. How about we look over at 1 Peter 3? And if, if, if you'll notice, I've got various passages here that I'm not going to touch upon, but I have put them there for your personal study. And if you want to talk more about these throughout the week, great, call me, email me, text me. However you like to communicate and feel loved, extend it my way, and let's talk about these things. 1 Peter chapter 3. That a beautiful sound, rustle of pages. I'm glad I don't hear click, click, 
click, click, click, click, click, click. Thank you, Lord. It's a good thing to know your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. Even if you had to turn to the table of contents, I'm not judging you. At least you're going there. Thank you. 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Honestly, we need to read the whole book. It's excellent. But verse 13. He asks a real good question. Peter asks a great question. Think about it. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? What is he saying? If all you care about doing in your life is things that are good and right, and who determines what is good and right? God alone. That's something they can't get away from. God alone determines those. So if that's where your focus is, who's really going to bring any kind of harm against you for doing the right thing? It almost seems silly that people would be upset with you for doing the right thing. Yet it doesn't take too long on Facebook to realize that's a reality, isn't it? We kind of wish First Peter was written today. Peter got off of Facebook and then he prayed a whole bunch, right? His words are true. Don't let the fact that we have Facebook skew you. His words are true. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. So it says here, but, verse 14, but, there could be an exception to this, but, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are, are you? You believe that. Praise the Lord. Somebody just popped all four of my tires because I love Jesus. Right? Don't you remember in Acts whenever it says that they were beaten because they refused to deny Jesus and they sent them back and they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. I tell you what, American Christianity has a lot to learn about first century Christianity. It's a completely different mindset. It really is. Think about what he's saying here. You could suffer for righteousness sake. Not everybody's called to that. Don't think that if I'm not suffering, I'm not holy. Don't think if I'm not suffering, I must not really love Jesus or I don't really have a good discipleship relationship. Suffering does not mean that you're super Christian. That's not what it boils down to. Sometimes we feel like, well, I'm not suffering enough. You're a child of God through his grace. Praise God for that. Not everybody's called to it. Here's what I do know. The people that are called to suffer for God's sake and notice, we're talking about what type of suffering are we talking about here? There's a type of suffering that is admirable before the Lord. And it's because you stood up for the right, the right things and you held fast to the word. I don't see a lot of that going on today. But if you are called to do that, I do know this. I have never seen a situation where the Lord has failed to supply the grace needed to make it through that situation. I'll give you a prime example. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody heard of that book? Fox's Book of Martyrs. You want to talk about recommended reading? There it is. And in each one of those situations that you read about, chronicled from the time of the crucifixion of Christ up until the modern day, there is not one instance in that book where God did not supply a dying grace. So you can suffer for righteousness. If you should suffer for it, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But here's how you handle it. Here is how you handle 
being ridiculed, persecuted, or suffering for righteousness' sake. Here's how you deal with it. And I'm sure when we read through this, your mind might think to a work environment or situation. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify? That's one of those real good preacher words, right? Justify, sanctify, glorify. Those are those like backwoods, long draw words. You kind of picture Jesse Jackson just rambling them all off because they all rhyme. He's a master at that. But anyway, what does it mean to sanctify? Set apart. You know that because you read the margin of your Bible, don't you? How many people read the margin of their Bible? That's where they got it from. Okay, so you just know it. Excellent. Excellent. In fact, the word that it's derived from, hagias in the Greek, is the same word where we get the idea of holy. When we talk about what it is to be holy, we talk about the fact that it has been set apart from something else that is more common. We are esteeming it or magnifying it as unique. Now here's a question. Is Peter writing to saved people or unsaved people? He's writing to saved people. Every book in the Bible is written to save people with the exception of the Gospel of John. It's written to tell people how to be saved. So since he's dealing with saved people, notice what he's telling them. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now is that talking about... What does it mean in this context when we're talking about heart? Talking about what? Your whole being. It's talking about the central seat of why you do what you do and why you think what you think. Notice Peter's instructions here. You are doing the right thing. And someone came along and they didn't like it. And so they're putting you through the ringer, either in a small way or in a large way. Either they poured sugar in your gas tank because of it. Either they graffitied your garage They're trying to set your house on fire. See, we don't deal with any of that, do we? It's a common occurrence everywhere else where Christians are. Think about how good we have it. But it could be extreme to where your very life is threatened. In fact, in the New Testament times, if you became a Christian, you were kicked out of the labor union. You couldn't find a job. That was one of the things they dealt with. How am I going to provide for my family? Nobody wants to hire me and nobody wants to accept me because of my convictions. Well, change your convictions. Anybody change your convictions other than the Holy Spirit getting in there and doing some work? No, it doesn't happen. So in this situation, how do I handle this, Peter? Here's what you do. First, the very core of your being needs to have something in place. Christ, our Lord, needs to be set apart from everything else. He needs to be Lord. Uh Uh-oh, are you talking about lordship salvation? No, you're already saved. But there are parts of our lives that may not have come under his leadership is what we're talking about. We're talking about that God has something to say about how we live our lives that we might not be doing. So what is the proper response? Lord, I need to have a pure, unadulterated, unobscured devotion to you, and I need to sit down and have that time of focus and reflection and decision with you, saying, this is supreme. This is it. This is it. Truth. I need to be on that. Does that make sense? There's nothing wrong with having that moment. It just means that you're growing greater in your intimacy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart towards holiness, setting you apart from that dangerous stuff. Sanctify him in your life. Sanctify him as Lord. 
So notice what it says here. Always, always means all the time, right? Being ready to make a defense, to make a defense. Is that talking about jujitsu defense? No. That's talking about an answer. That's talking about having a reply. If people like to persecute in any way, they love to try to slash you with their tongues. It's always about what comes out of the mouth to inflict pain. How many people have told you something that's hurtful? Right? Husbands start wiping their brows. Because we're all guilty, aren't we? Oh, yeah? Well, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately the Holy Spirit's like, you should have said that. <laughs> right? And you can just tell. Oh, man. I got like at least seven years of making up to do now. The tongue is so dangerous. It's how it can inflict a lot of pain and suffering upon people. But notice what he says here. How do we handle it? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account, a reason for the, what is it? Hope. There's that word again. For the firm and confident expectation that you have that is in you. Yet, here's the attitude, do it with gentleness and reverence. Do it with gentleness and reverence. In other words, when the hardship comes, and because you are taking the mode of persevering up under it, your actions are going to preach. Your actions, your deciding how to deal with the situation and keeping Christ first and ever before you in it. You got that down, it's going to dictate how you do everything else and move forward. But in doing that, people watch. You get a red tag on your desk and the pagans around you get it too? They're all complaining, freaking out, cussing, throwing things. You're chill. Let's use that word, right? You're chill. Why? Because I know who's in control. Because God wasn't unaware. Because I chose not to take the step in doubting God's character when the time got hard. Just because the pressure was on didn't change who God was. Guess what? They don't have that hope. They don't have that confident expectation of the things to come. You know what they're doing? What's wrong with him? How come he's not freaking out? And it sparks the conversation. What's Peter saying? Be ready. Because when they ask, guess what? You get to tell them. And you get to tell them with a good attitude, right? Being ready to give an account for the hope that's in you with gentleness and reverence, considering them better than yourselves, approaching them lightly because they're not dealing with it well. Suffering creates opportunities to witness. Notice verse 16, and, keeping, and, and keep a good conscience. In other words, have your mind free of hate and spite. So that, here's the reason, 
And the thing in which you are slandered, when they slander you, you trust in God. <laughs> how, many are, how many people have seen Evan Almighty with Steve Carell? Anybody seen that where he's called to build an ark? That, that movie is more right on than a lot of preachers I listen to, man. It really is. There's all kinds of things you can catch in there. And they ask him, who told you this? God. And immediately everybody, what? <laughs> everybody slanders immediately. If they slander you because of your reason that you are giving, look what it says here. You're doing it with a good conscience. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Is that what you want for those people? No, that's what happens to those people. Why does it happen? Because you just stuck with the truth and said it's true. That didn't change. But it probably so provoked them because of how apart from the truth that they were or are, the only response they can give is slander and hate. I can't believe you believe in God. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What's wrong with you? That doesn't have to affect you. They're not mad at you. They're apart from God. They're dead in trespasses and sins. That's the problem. So that when they slander you, they'll be put to shame. Why? Here's the reason why, guys. Truth prevails. Truth always comes out on top. Always. One more passage. I'm going to share something with you. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter one. Now we know from First Corinthians this was crazy church, right? When you get into Second Corinthians, you find a, a, an interesting variation in Paul's tone. And this first chapter gives us something amazing. I hope that you believe this. I hope that you see it. I hope that you can reflect back upon this and say, you know what, the suffering has a, has a much greater meaning than just me looking inward now. Because that's a problem. When we get in the midst of a hard time or suffering, we look inward. It's us who are in trouble. We're on our team all the time. It's very interesting because the Bible seems to constantly be pointing, look outward. Look at what God's doing around you. Don't look into your situation. Look around what God can do in the situation. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. And here's a, here's a great one. The God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. If he's anything, he is a comforting God. And look what it says, verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction. All means what, church? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. So that means whatever affliction you got going on, he's got it. He can comfort you in it. And isn't that the very thing that we're looking for anyway in the midst of it? How can I feel better about all this? Guess what? God will take care of it. Who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You say, that's the word comfort a lot. What in the world did that just say? 
it says we experience the hard time. And God steps in as only he can and does God things. And one of the God things he does is give this peace in the midst of the storm. To where when everything is falling apart around you, it's okay. And you can accept that. It's amazing to see that on somebody's face when they know it. It's okay. It's okay. In fact, I want to show you something that shows that. But yet, the comfort that you get, you get to turn around. And when you find a brother or sister in Christ that goes through those same troubled waters that you've been delivered out of, you get to be the hands and feet of God himself providing comfort for that person. This church is real good about being giving and loving. In suffering times, that's really when the rubber meets the road. It's really when the hands and feet of the church become indispensable to our lives. Because the Christian life is really not about how much we know. It's about what we're doing to encourage our brothers and sisters with what we know. It is action, is what it is. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. In other words, they hated Jesus. Let's not be surprised they hate us, right? But notice what it says. So also, our comfort is, what is the word, church? Abundant, abundant, abundant in Christ. Just as we have the sufferings of Christ, so is our comfort abundant. But it's only abundant in one location. Not in your job, not in your friends, not in your family. We have a close-knit family. They're going to let you down. Let me go ahead and destroy that scenario for you. This abundant, abundant, It's a good word. This abundant comfort is found in one location, Christ. Now, I'm going to give everybody 10 seconds to close up your Bibles. Because I got something to say. I feel like I've gotten to know a lot of you well some of you not so well but i'm excited about it we just need to get together and have coffee right but i think that if i have an opportunity to share pieces of my life with you guys in a way that maybe everybody can understand at one time i think it's a good thing to do that and like i told you i I haven't experienced a lot of suffering Uh, but some of the suffering that i have experienced has actually been documented in video And so what I want to do is I want to introduce you to somebody. He is my best friend in the entire world. His name is Nathan Schroer. And when I was fresh in from Kentucky into Indiana, the winter of 93, sophomore in high school, and I'm trying to get involved in there, and in in this school that I went to, this high school that I got into, If you didn't have money, you were nothing. And you had to have a lot of it. 
Because you had to have the car, you had to have the clothes. That was not my crowd. And it was hard. But about three days in, I get off the bus. I'm walking to my place where we're living at the time. And a car pulls up. And a guy jumps out. He says, hey man, are you the new guy from Kentucky that plays the drums? And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm from Kentucky. I came here a couple of years ago. This place is awful. <laughs> in fact, I think he used another word, but I can't say it in church, right? <laughs> but from that moment on, he and I were best friends. We're like brothers. He and I played in three different bands together. He and I wrote a lot of songs together, a lot of tours together. Um, we, we were roommates for years. We slept in the same bed for about four years. And that's just because we couldn't afford a second bed. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, I have memories for, for years um, of my relationship with him. And... Uh, just want to show you a little bit of his story. And um, if, you, if you notice what a good job Mitch does with the website, Mitch is taking some follow-up stories that are on video, and he's, he's going to put links on the website if you want to follow that more. I'm not here trying to belabor everybody, but I do want to get kind of a point across and you kind of see um, a, a, a abundant comfort in Christ in the midst of a storm. So... Nathan, how would you describe growing up? Disappointment. Nothing like a good tearjerker to end the sermon, right? Here's an example. You know, it was really interesting because in a lot of my conversations with him in the last days of his life, it really wasn't about whether you were living or whether you were dying. It really was about who you're trusting. And that's what made all the difference in the world. Now, I think if you ask my wife, there's no way to describe his funeral. Being on the police force you had everybody out in droves and um, I was a little jaded I didn't get an opportunity to speak uh, that's probably the preacher in me um, so eight people came to Christ from his funeral it was broadcast over the internet we carried his casket out and put it in the car to go to the gravesite, and Beth and I got in the car and we're driving. And I mean, they have fire trucks with ladders extended over a four-lane highway with a large, the biggest American flag I've ever seen in my life, floating in the breeze. And we're just like, good grief! I thought Nathan would be so embarrassed. By all this going on, there's people stopped on the side of the roads. 
knowing that it's going on because he had come, become somewhat of a city hero. Standing outside of their cars with their hats across their hearts. Some of them doing this as he goes by. It's one of the most God-glorifying funerals I've ever seen in my life. I miss him. But the effect that he's been able to have from dying has been all to God's glory. We never know what God is going to do with suffering. But He's there. Always. Let's pray. God, every one of us goes through a hard time. Times when we can legitimately say, I am suffering. We often feel like there's no relief or that sometimes we're convinced that you've forsaken us. Lord, that is completely against everything you've ever told us. You are loving and you are good. You are righteous. You are holy. And you are intensely personal. Father, I pray when we come upon those hard times, strengthen our hearts with the Scriptures that we've seen today. That You're doing an amazing work to create undoubted expectation in our lives. You're providing opportunities to witness that You're giving us the tools necessary to come alongside others in the body. If we go through suffering, it is for much greater reasons than ourselves. So help us, God, to, to, to get that, to realize the truth in that. Bring it to our minds when we most need it, Father. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look through the... Uh...